Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. With us this week, we're getting woolly bugged. Mr. Michael Lavanco comes through the studio, and we have ourselves a great conversation. In this one, guys, we get pretty deep into kind of the way that fishing can make you feel and how you can move throughout your life in a different way once you learn just some of the things that go on in your mind and your mental mindset while you're able to be out there fishing. And in this one, we go with fly fishing specifically, and it's a deep conversation. I think that there's points in here that we make and talk about that some of you guys are going to really connect with and really enjoy because you can understand where we're coming from. And, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said about why we like to fish and what that does for our psyche. You know, I, I, I always preach that that is part of my getaway and I, I need that, that release. That's something that I can do outside of the hunting season that keeps me sane, if you will. And for those of you that don't really understand or know where I'm coming from, this is where I really suggest that you get out on the stream or you get out on the lake with somebody who's willing to help you. And I'm sure that you would not have a hard time finding someone that, that would be able to help you. So it's one of those things that most people don't experience and just kind of look through a window at and think maybe that's not for me or why would they want to do something like that? But just just don't judge it is, is what I'm getting at. And, um, you know, this show is full of, of more people that, that are interested in that stuff than, than anything. But on the flip side, reach out to somebody, especially youth, and, and get them out on the water and, and teach them this way of life. Because I've been on this earth for 32 years and I, I haven't found anything that does what the outdoors do for me. So if we can pass that on and keep our traditions going, it's better for all of us. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have to show them our favorite spot. <laughs> so I really hope you guys enjoy this one. Guys, Mike was a great guest. He has some great content. Wooly Bugged. That's his Instagram handle. He's got a great YouTube channel. Guys, check it out, man. It's, it, it's really good stuff. So, Mike, thank you for coming through. And I really hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget to rate comment subscribe spotify and on the apple podcast app that really helps the show moving forward thank you guys here we go ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another episode of the keystone chronicles podcast with us this week michael Levanko. mike am i saying that right yes you actually did a great job of pronouncing that perfect perfect sometimes i, I knock them out of the park and at other times um I got a whole list of stuff here that I want to ask you, and I just I get ahead of myself and, and start thinking about that stuff. But, Mike, I, I've been chasing you around for a while, man, and, and you got just some awesome fish that I know that you've caught throughout the years. So I, I'm super excited for this conversation. Uh, we were talking a little bit too much before we come on. I always do that, and I just I, I get to talking, and, and I get all excited. But um, who are you? Uh, maybe where you're from, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and what kind of fisherman are you? Well, thanks, Marcus, and I appreciate you having me on. This is actually the first podcast I've ever done. That's awesome. I've had other people reach out to me, and it just never worked out till now, so I'm happy to be speaking to you. Great. My name's Michael. Uh, you can call me Mike, and I am originally from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I spent most of my life in Pennsylvania, 
I did spend a stint in Florida and Virginia when I was young, but most of my time has been spent here in Pennsylvania. And I spent time fishing the streams of Lancaster County and Dauphin County and York County growing up. And probably my first introduction to fly fishing was through people that I went to high school with, uh, spending time down in Boiling Springs and Camp Hill area, Mm -hmm. where, as you know, there's some pretty well-known streams down in that part, uh, whether it's the Latour or uh, the Yellow Breaches. And those places were really where I was first introduced to the concept of fly fishing. But for most of my childhood and teens, I was a spin fisherman. Yeah. Uh, my father and I, you know, spent Saturdays on the Susquehanna River and the Juniana River in a little 12 foot V bottom bass boat. <laughs> and that's really where I cut my teeth learning about fish and learning about the rivers of Pennsylvania. Uh, specifically smallmouth bass were a big part of my time growing up. And when we fished for trout, it was usually stock trout and it was with power bait or spinners and a spin rod, a little, you know, five or six foot ugly stick with a small spin reel. And that's really how I got started with fishing and a little bit about where I'm from. So, um, would you attest that your uh, biggest mentor in the fishing was, was your dad? So I would say my father introduced the love of the outdoors to me. Uh-huh. I, I'm a big believer that when you were young, I think that your experiences at that time in your life really wire you for who you become and what your interests are uh-huh. and where you find excitement and passion and for me, my father would take me along on his fishing adventures and his hunting trips. And he was an explorer. And I think for him, it was also part of showing his kid, you know, his passion. And so that kind of was passed to me. And I think at that young age, it just kind of is ingrained in you and you can't shake it and it becomes your makeup. And I think you then go back to that as you get older. Yeah, And so I would say my, my father, number one, but there were certainly people through the years, uh, that had an impact on my fishing knowledge. And then eventually what brought me to fly fishing. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I think that most of us start that way, like you said, uh, maybe starting with a spinning rod and maybe it's similar to starting uh, small game hunting instead of jumping right into big game hunting. But mm-hmm. as we, progress and as we get more in tune with with the whole you know techniques and the aspect of actually learning a a stream or or learning a lake and being able to read water you you just want more of a challenge and it's just (laughs) once you get into fly fishing it, it gets much much harder and much more technical in the way that you do things you know you don't just pull spool back and cast up over your head and the line goes out 50 feet in front of you. So you, that is, that is very true. And you know, my path to fly fishing maybe doesn't go as far back as some people. It wasn't until I was in my college years at Penn state where I really started to find fly fishing and my interest was peaked. 
uh, I had a friend growing up, Matt, who I still fish with this uh, to this day. And Matt always fly fished. And every time I would take my spin rod, Matt would have his fly rod. So I knew of it, mm-hmm. but my interest wasn't really peaked until I was at Penn State. And I still remember the first time that I ever caught a fish on a fly rod. Uh, Matt and I would go out to a lot of the big streams there in Center County. Mm-hmm. And he took me down to the Little J one day. And we found a pod of rising fish. And it was the first time that he actually offered to pass that fly rod to me mm-hmm. and cast a dry fly. And I put it upstream. And when that fish came up and hit it, and I felt that fish on a fly rod for the first time, <laughs> it was just so different than any experience I'd ever had. And it's just a different connection to the fish than what you experience using regular or what I would call regular tackle. And I was just curious from that point on. And I think that's kind of where the evolution started to me moving from spin fishing to fly fishing and realizing that there's a much deeper experience to pursue here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would agree with you. There's, there's a lot to be said about the connection between uh, a fly rod and and the person using it and why, why they become so, I mean, so obsessed. That's, that's really the word I want to use because it seems like most guys don't just decide, well, today I'm going to take the fly rod or today I'm going to take uh, the spin rod or, or whatever whatever else they have. They, they kind of stick to one thing, and, and I, I do understand how that works. So and, it, and for me, it was really kind of fighting and clawing almost to adopt it because there were a couple of years in there where I really struggled with learning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we didn't always have access to everything that's on YouTube and the web like we do now. Right. I mean, the kids coming up today have access to so much fly fishing knowledge. And back then, you know, even the early 2000s, before the web was super prolific and social media was super prolific, you still really did rely on books to to some extent. And um, especially with fly fishing, that's where I initially learned things and it was just fishing with other people, people that took the time to show me something who uh, dealt with my constant questions. Uh, You know, how do you tie this knot? Can you show me how to tie that knot for the 50th time? And can you explain to me the leader and the tippet? And uh, I kind of take it for granted now, the things that I know how to do, they almost come like second nature now. But there was a time where those things didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it. And it's funny how there's that 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 gap that you eventually bridge and it just becomes um you know second nature yeah yeah i mean it becomes more than a muscle memory but at the same time you know you you were really uh expressing what we were talking about earlier with the you you had somebody who was patient enough to show you over Mm -hmm. and over again and and pass that knowledge on to you so, you know, mm-hmm. you know, on the flip side of your journey now, you know how hard it was for you to understand or learn. And that's probably why they were so patient with you. And that's why, you know, you were probably so patient with the people that you teach also, because it's not something that you were just get overnight, where as I could probably take my eight year old godson and teach him how to cast a spinning rod in an hour's worth of time. Absolutely. So, Yeah. And I think it's also just educating yourself and and having a deeper understanding of 
fishing and the fish that you're chasing and the environment that you're chasing them in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I think with the world of fly fishing, it just naturally dives deeper into that, that world and that environment. And you have to understand those things at a very deep level to be successful. And I think that's part of the appeal of it. Yeah. Uh, Well, so would you say, um, you know, when, when we are fly fishing, you know, that, that requires a pretty deep understanding of, of the, the natural environment that the trout are in and how they behave. You know, what, what are some things that you study or look at when you're looking at water that maybe help to help you increase your chances of catching fish, you know? Um, would that be certain times of the year that things change weather patterns? Um, you know, what's some of the things that you look at whenever you do go out fly fishing? That is a big question, Marcus. (laughs) It is pretty loaded. It is pretty loaded. So I guess let me, um, and and I can break it down for you. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, I guess, yeah, in a simple way. Um, yes, obviously, you know, weather, has an impact on streams and temperature has an impact and time of year and season and the bugs that are hatching and right. um, the location, all these things um, have an impact. But in general, if I'm going to a stream, um, I want to first understand the topography of the area. Uh, I want to understand how much descent's happening. That's going to change um, water depth in places. Uh, when I come to the stream, I'm going to be trying to visualize it both from above and from a side dissection. Uh, where is the water moving? Where is the current the swiftest? Where is the structure? Um, because typically, if you can immediately locate structure, there's a good chance that you can find fish if they're present in the stream. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the water moves through the stream and, uh, you know, where there's oxygenated water uh, more than the next area, um, you know, may indicate where the fish are. And, you know, then you get into, like you had mentioned, the time of the year. If it's in the springtime, then there might be a higher likelihood that fish have moved out of deeper water from their winter hold up into faster water where they're more likely to be feeding on bugs that are now active. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically the first thing I'm doing is visualizing the stream when I walk up. And I'm also, you know, I would have prepped prior to understand the, you know, ecology or the biology of that particular stream. Mm -hmm. You know, what might the fish be eating there? Um, What type of fish are they? Um, You know, I'm looking at all those different factors and stream features to try to uh, add up to a plan that's going to be successful. Right. Now... Do you consider yourself more of a trout bum than anything, or is there some other fish that you enjoy chasing? Uh, so I do have a soft spot in my heart for the native brook trout in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just because growing up, that's the first fish that I really encountered. Um, when I was very young, you know, going to my uncle's cabin to deer hunt, you know, at nine or 10 years old and uh, seeing a spring that came up where they got drinking water that eventually turned into a wider uh, body of water that had these little fish 
that were colorful and lived under the bank mm-hmm. um, was kind of always fascinating to me. Yeah. And I remember seeing guys that could, could swing a worm under the bank and, and catch these fish. It's like, what are these fish? <laughs> you know? Um, They're gold. And I, yeah. And I can even remember, you know, I can remember walking down to his hunting cabin uh, spring. It was kind of like a spring house. And mm-hmm. there was a big lid you would pull off uh, to pot water. And I can even remember seeing brook trout down in that spring, like swimming around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the, you know, one of the first fish I have memories of. So I have a soft spot for those trout because they're, I think they're native here. And, and, um, you know, there's a special connection to Pennsylvania in that regard. For sure. Um, and so I think, uh, those fish, but also, uh, you know, through my time fishing, you know, I also have, uh, gained this interest in pursuing other fish and that would include you know steelhead trout here in pennsylvania and erie uh, and the tributaries to to lake erie it would include um, the salmon up on the salmon river in new york uh, the lake run brown trout coming out of lake ontario Um, all of those larger fish have become interesting you know of course catching a big fish can be a lot of fun (laughs) but it's pretty hard marcus to match the beauty of, of where the brook trout live and, 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 and that fish that's native to, you know, the East and the Appalachian mountain range. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they just hold a special place. Yep. I understand fully. I'm, I'm right there next to you. They just, man, there's just something about them. And, you know, like you said, it's great to catch big trout and I, I am a big trout enthusiast with the best of them, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I, you can take me on the stream and if we're catching five inch brook trout, I mean, I'm grinning ear to ear the whole time. Cause it's just fun. I don't, I don't yeah, know. And that's, you know, a lot of people that are not from the States or from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. they can't relate to that. I, I remember uh, when I first started posting brook trout videos on YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, people would reach out from South America or Central America and they'd be like, we use fish like that for bait down here. <laughs> and, you know, you can understand their thinking right. and you can understand why it's probably humorous, but they don't have the con- context of why that fish is regarded the way it is in my mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, you almost wish you could bring them up here to show them. And yeah. you, you almost would bet that they'd understand it after seeing it. Yeah. I think, you know, for the native brook trout, one thing is it's just how um, intricate and how uh, how the the details come into play whenever you're in these small streams, these mountain streams, and you're you're working for these trout. You know, you're mm-hmm. if you're fly fishing them, you know, you're 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 bow casting, and there's some spots you just can't even roll cast. And mm. you're just, you know, you're, you look at that piece of mountain laurel hanging over the stream right there. And it's only three inches from the top of the, of the water. And you can see mm-hmm. a, a heavy, uh, root system coming up over that. And, you know, the oxygenated water, there's bubbles coming right there. And it's like, I swear I, I get giddy like a, like a child on Christmas day <laughs> when I see that. Cause I, you just know they're there, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and you know, you just got to get that, that fly or that lore or whatever you're using up underneath that bank and mm-hmm. you know hang on and have fun and 
I, I think that that's what it is. I think it's just because of how involved you have to be with that. Whereas when you get out on a big river, yeah, you're reading the water and you're going to put yourself in a spot where, but you might cast 10 times in the same spot, moving down mm. on a boat or on the, on the bank side. And you're not really, I mean, you're just kind of casting out there and you're just, mm. there's not a lot of, you know, precision going into that cast at that moment, if you will. That's that's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because you know maybe that is part of the the allure of brook trout fishing in Pennsylvania is just the fact that in some ways they are so predictable, yeah. um, but in other ways they're not. Right. And a lot of that's you know a lot of that's dictated by streams and and all the other factors that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing that I I would proclaim is that you know the brook trout is how I feel like you can get anybody really, really hooked because I've seen beautiful brown trout. I've seen beautiful rainbows. I've seen beautiful cutthroat trout. But mm -hmm. when when you pull out a brook trout that's 10, 11 inches, you know, that's that's a pretty girthy, uh, long trout for, for a brook trout. And they have the, that, that orangish red belly and they mm -hmm. the, the fins have the white tips to them. And mm -hmm. they're just, they got the, the, the red dots are heavy down through them and they, that, that purple bluish color. It just, mm -hmm. I just think that they're the best looking trout in, in my personal opinion. And, um, I think that there's not as many of them as there are wild brown trout. There's a lot of different States you can go and catch wild brown trout and, mm -hmm. um, the brook trout are just, they're just not all over the place when you find them. Yes. You usually find a vast majority of them. Um, but you can go a lot more places and catch brown trout than you can these fish. And that's why our mountains of Pennsylvania are so highly regarded. And it's just something that we have really well. And you can follow the mountain range, of course, and you're, you're still in the brook trout, but Pennsylvania has got a lot of really great brook trout streams. So mm, it sure does. It sure does. Let's hope it stays that way for I, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too. You know, if you do see those fish in that water, you do know, that they'll give you a little insight on how good that water is. Cause if it's not, they, will, they will not survive there. hundred so, percent. Um, when it comes to fishing, you know, do you, at the beginning of the year, maybe if you're fishing some stock water, do you kill mm -hmm. or eat any trout or any, anything like that? Or do you, is, are you mainly catch and release kind of guy? I am a hundred percent catch and release. Okay. Uh, it's not necessarily because I'm doing it because I only believe in catch and release. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly do not have a problem with people eating fish that they catch. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially with the stock trout, I have absolutely no problem at all. Uh, I think that's actually the reason they were put in there yeah. is uh, put and take. Right. Yep, I agree. So I have no issue with, with people keeping stocked fish. I think when you get into the wild trout, yeah. certainly if, if the numbers are there from a management perspective, um, I don't have any problem with keeping them. I personally would not keep wild trout to eat um, just because I appreciate their beauty. But uh, kind of the, the irony of my life is that the reason that I don't keep and eat any trout is because I actually have an allergy to fish. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I cannot eat fish. Yeah. And uh, every time I tell everybody that, they're like, well, that's ironic. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty much pretty much the definition of irony. Um, so how, but, how uh, I guess I got to ask, yeah. how did you, how did you stumble upon that? Like, how did you find out that you were in fact, you know, allergenic to, to eating fish? 
so just to be clear because people always ask this so so how do you touch fish if you have an allergy to them and and i say well it's not touching them it's Mm -hmm. actually eating the fish i can't eat the fish right um so i found that out when i was a kid my mother used to feed me and my sister fish sticks with french fries and it would always make my lips puff up (laughs) and i was like mom these things i can't eat them and she thought that i was just trying to get out of eating dinner (laughs) and uh it was actually an allergy and then that was later confirmed uh later on in my life by actually going to an allergist and having the you know the fish protein in one of those uh tests where they prick your back and they they put the protein over top and they see if you react and fish are just for whatever reason that's uh that's one of my my things so yeah yeah that's i mean i'll be honest with you i don't think that you're missing out too much um on that stuff <laughs> um now you know i'm sure that that's you know shellfish are probably in with that and my wife and I enjoy eating a lot of different shellfish and we really enjoy eating sushi. So, um, I guess you probably, well, believe it or not, believe it or not, I can eat shellfish, okay. which is really strange. You okay. know, a lot of people usually, you know, have it the other way around. Mm-hmm. They can't eat shellfish, but they can eat right. fish. Well then um, you but co- for me, it's fish. You come out on top if you ask me, cause you're, you're, <laughs> you're eating the finer things for sure. <laughs> I do like shellfish, but I'll tell you sometimes, um, you know, just from an eating healthy perspective, sometimes I wish I could eat salmon and yeah. uh, rock bass or, you know, whatever, yep. uh, you know, the, the great tasting fish out there are. Sometimes I wish I could enjoy it. Yep. Yep. I understand that. That's one. that's what the, the road I've walked. So, so when it comes to uh, different conservation efforts and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. keeping on track with the catch and release, is mm-hmm. there anything else that you want to preach or talk about? Um, like, I don't know obviously we want people to pick up their trash and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. is there anything else you know i i have seen something lately brought up and it's them people moving rocks and stuff in the stream Mm. um yeah is that something you run into a lot when you're out fishing so you know conservation comes in a a lot of different um looks and you know one of the things i've learned and look i am I, I never have considered myself an expert in anything and anything I'm saying now is just knowledge I've picked up along my journey. But one of the things I've learned about fish in Pennsylvania and, and trout in general is that um, conservation for them really needs to start with the water source. And anybody you talk to that is serious in the trout game and in the trout conservation game will probably all start with clean water. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I would say is I think supporting clean water initiatives and and supporting things companies and things that promote clean water and responsible uh dumping and those types of things um, that is important protecting our watersheds is a big part of protecting trout Um, so once you get past that and you know maybe you're actually talking more about uh, the act of fishing you know, it's a lot of the things that you see that maybe when you first got into this, this sport, you just didn't understand. But in brook trout fishing specifically, you know, we always talk about hooks with no barbs mm-hmm. or barbs that are pinched. Yeah. And that truly is critical. Anybody who's fished for brook trout with a fly rod, well, actually any rod, will understand that if you put a barbed hook through a brook trout's mouth, there's a good chance that you are going to injure the fish trying to get the barb out. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the first things I will say is 
barbless hooks are absolutely important to keeping down mortality rates of brook trout. It's just the truth. Uh, I'm not saying they're not hardy, um, but barbless hooks are important because they are fragile fish in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I also think, you know, one thing I always wrestle with, and, and some people would probably get irritated by this comment, mm-hmm. but, you know, a lot of guys come to me and say, hey, did you ever do Tenkara fishing? And one of the things I don't like about Tenkara is that it offers, in my opinion, now this might be different on very small streams, but I feel like it offers less control of the fish and getting the fish to the net. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a reel, I can reel that fish. I, if I need to, I can get it into a net faster. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of using tools that will get the fish to the net. And then I think, you know, the practice of trying to keep that fish uh, in the water as much as possible. Uh-huh. And, you know, I know that there, that there are some people that take an extreme position on never taking the fish out of the water. I don't necessarily take that position. Uh-huh. Um, I, I can appreciate it, but I don't necessarily take that position. But I do think it's just general sportsmanship and responsibility and respect for the resource. If you catch fish using that, preferably a rubber net, keep the fish in the net as much as possible, take your pictures. Don't, you know, I think one of the interesting challenges we have in our generation, Marcus, is that with the advent of YouTube and social media, Mm -hmm. some people's desire to capture visual content probably sometimes puts the life of the fish at risk. And I think that that's something that's super important for our generation to respect the fish and know that, Hey, I can get a picture or I can get a video, but I can do it in a way that's responsible and not sit there handling a fish for 15 minutes in the net so that you can get a perfect shot. Yeah. Um, you're make that make, I never heard that point brought up, but you make a great, great point right there for sure. And I see that a lot, you know, and, and honestly, that's something else that I would say to anyone who listens to this is, we have got to learn to be patient and be teachers of the younger generations because they're finding the same joys and passions, but they have all these new tools. They have this, all these social media platforms, they have cameras, they have cell phones and they're going out and they're driven by this desire to capture content, to share with their friends and with the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that drives more of what they're doing than thinking about the fish. And I think finding ways to subtly remind people that that's important. And that's, you know, when I started out, I didn't do it right. You know, I didn't understand some of these things. And right. it's, it's one of those things, the more you do it, the more you spend time on a, on a brook trout stream in the woods and you realize how special of a resource, how fragile they are. You just kind of naturally learn like, Hey, this is how I have to treat these things to to do it the right way. And um, I think finding ways to teach the young kids without blasting them and and beating them over the head publicly um is the right thing to do uh and and you know there's people that are out there that that maybe just don't care and and that's a different discussion but you know a lot of kids they just don't know they don't think about it they don't see it that way and i think you know we have an opportunity to to train and and educate the younger generations in a kind way like hey have you thought about this um we don't need to be YouTube comment police and we don't need to be Facebook police, but we can find ways to, 
to show and remind people. And that's why if I do make a video now or I post something now, I try to do it in a way that demonstrates it in a way that I think respects the resource. Mm -hmm. Now, you make a great point there. I haven't really thought about that. And then, like when you were saying about the Tenkora rod, do you think um, when you're when you're saying that as far as not being able to control them as much, are you referring to like not being able to bring them in quick enough so they're wearing the fish out? Yeah, I think okay. uh, I think I think a tenkara rod naturally, and and you know again, the tenkara movement would probably be upset with me saying that, <laughs> and it and my goal is not to right. bash tenkara because I think there are places where you can do it ethically and and everything's fine, but the reality is, if you don't have a reel on the fishing rod, and you have a fish on the line that's large enough to put up a fight on a tenkara rod, there's no way to pull the line back in. So you're forced to try to use the the rod itself to try to muscle it back towards a bank or or something and try to get it to a net. And I feel like the reel being on the fishing rod provides more control that you don't have with the ten car rod. Yeah. So to me, it's about having that control to be able to do things more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I. I... Again, maybe not every application. There. You right. know, I'm confident there's small streams where you could have a stick with a string and hook a five inch brook trout and bring it right to the net. But in many brook trout streams I've been in, you know, if you're fishing a 10 foot wide stream and you have a 10 car rod and you get a, you know, an eight, nine or 10 inch brook trout, they will fight on that thing forever. Mm -hmm. And you're probably adding, you know, an extended period of time that you didn't need to be fighting that fish to a net. Right. Yep. I understand exactly what you're saying. And again, I, that comes from the perspective of just trying to respect the resource. Mm -hmm. Just trying to be a steward of the water. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of, I guess, lessons and, and growth within fly fishing or just fishing in particular. Is there any uh, insights that you, you've gained from fly fishing or lessons that you learned on your journey that not only helped you in the fly in fly fishing actually but maybe translated in any other areas of your life that is a really good question and that's another deep one right mm -hmm. yeah, and definitely. you know i mean first and foremost some of the places that i've hiked into especially in the appalachians in pennsylvania mm -hmm. have just given me a true appreciation for the resources that are available to us in this state and in the east and how fragile some of those resources are and how lucky and blessed i and others are to be able to go into a stream like that on our own not see another person and experience that yeah um it's hard to put that into words yeah. um but beyond that you know life lesson wise i think about some of the trips I've taken where I've had to problem solve, think of my feet. Yeah. Um, you know, hiking six miles one way into a stream and then coming back out and being so exhausted <laughs> to walk up a mountain that feels like it's almost 90 degrees straight up. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I've learned is that are the human body and the human mind, you can push past points of pain and exhaustion further than maybe you think you can. Okay. And in the case of my brook trout fishing 
when you hike that far and then come back and it's getting dark and I'm trying to get back to my truck, like you don't have a choice to stop. Like (laughs) I have to get back to my truck. And, you know, there are times where I've been so exhausted. I literally am just standing on the side of a mountain, either in a patch of mountain laurel or on a field of rocks and the sun's dropped behind, it's getting dark. And I am in so much physical, physical exhaustion. I can't even raise my leg to go another 10 feet. And and then you kind of tell yourself like, I can push through this. And I think that's, that's kind of an interesting perspective because there are other times in life where you can apply that and think, you know what, I can handle this. I can, I can take it further. So mentally and physically, you can always push yourself further than you really think you can, even when it feels like you've exhausted yourself. I love that. I love that answer. I love what you did with that question. And I, I, think that there's just so much that goes into fishing that you can use throughout your life you know my wife always tells me she says I just you're just so patient and you know Mm. I just think that through all outdoor activities you know especially within hunting and fishing that's just something that you just learn to to do is just I I guess basically how to calm your mind and how Mm. to make proper decisions and judgments um at, at any time you know when you're when you're fly fishing and you decide you're going to change flies you know or um you don't get overly excited and you go up and you you know you could cast right in when you come up to a certain spot like a riff or a run but you kind of look at it and you're like well you know yeah it might be a little bit more for me to walk over to the other side of the creek and kind of get up in that tree and then try to cast but like that's the run i need and that's what i want and mm. so you, you kind of go that extra mile and I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to, I guess, put, put it into, into, into somebody's mind here, what the, where I'm going with this and, uh, you know, how, how that relates into other forms of your life is you, you have that patience or you have mm. that uh, ability to, when presented with a challenge to come out on top and have it figured out in a timely manner and, and not really lose your mind over it either, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I would agree with the patience piece. And, you know, one other thing that came to mind when I was thinking about that was there are so many times in life where maybe you think you have everything figured out Mm -hmm. and then you see things from a different perspective and it changes the entire way you view things. And that has happened to me many, many times in fly fishing where I thought I understood something, you know, whether it was the way you look at a stream or the way you drift uh, nymphs through a run and you meet someone and they share information with you or you read something or you watch something or like, wow, I never thought about it from that perspective. And it changes everything and makes you better. And I think that's why it's really important in fly fishing to try to be humble and you're never going to know it all. Mm-hmm. It's a lifelong learning pursuit. And I think that's one of the things I love about it. And I like that you can think you have it figured out only to learn something and have it completely change the way you do everything. Yeah. But you know what? That is a testament to who you are within your mind too and the kind of person you are because, see, and I feel like this is really prominent in the outdoor community. People of the outdoors are very open-minded and they they are willing to listen and learn uh, for the most part in almost all scenarios and applications. Unfortunately... 
some of um, I don't want to get into politics at all, but on the other <laughs> spectrum, you can't even have a conversation um, mm. right where it's just, no, that's not it. You're wrong. This is the way it is. Mm. And um, that's yeah, why I don't I, think that's good. I don't think that's good uh, with anything in life. I think it's always good to, to listen. Yeah, and draw, be able to draw your own opinions, and still, you know, you you take somebody else's opinion in, into perspective, and you kind of just, well, let me step into your shoes for a second and try to see mm-hmm. where you're coming from. And sometimes, you know, that's some of the best lessons I've ever got in my life have been when someone says something to me, and I actually have to turn around and think about it for a couple minutes, and I go, "Holy shit, you just blew my mind!" Like, <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. That's yeah. that's the best stuff, man, and that's why, you know. Um, yeah, that's why when you get somebody who is a little bit more uh, contradictive of, of what you're thinking is, it can be really, really intriguing to see or, or kind of feel where they're going with different, different things. And, and usually mm. that's, that is where we learn because, uh, we may have been showed something, you know, there's things, boy, God bless my dad and, and my family, my pap and all that. They've taught me and showed me everything that, that I really have used as a baseline and learned and went my own route on. But there's some things I've seen where, Hey, this, this person showed me this and I'm telling you, this is probably the better way to do it. So, mm. um, being open-minded like that, I feel like is, uh, you know, a huge, a huge factor, at least to my success in, in life, not just only in mm-hmm. the outdoors community. So mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Well, you know, we all like catching really big trout. Um, mm-hmm. at least as fishermen. And um, I guess, would you rather catch a number of fish or would you rather catch that one memorable fish? Oh, boy. <laughs> can I have Can I have both? <laughs> I know, right? We all want both. But I can tell you, <clears throat> and I'll, just, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, so I was on the stream this one day, and uh, I left here in the morning. It was early. It was like 5, 5, 5.30. Um, and I told my wife, I said, Hey, I'll be back around 10 o'clock. Um, that's usually about the time I like to roll back in. So I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not gone for too long. So I'm not on the, Hey, where you been list, but I'm, I got, I got my fix in. So, <laughs> um, usually, uh, I, I, I like to get four hours on the stream if I can, but, um, I, I was out fishing. It was just one of them days. Like I just was skunked up. Um, I had a couple fish on, lost some fish. I had lost two larger trout. Um, persistence though, you know, I'm not going to go back to the truck. Did I want to throw my rod in the tree or break it in half or for a second? Yeah. But, um, you just, you, you, you figure out, Hey, there's more in here and you, mm. you, you press forward and you work. And I had only caught like four fish and it just wasn't looking, looking too good. But, um, I pressed on and I went a little bit further up this stream than I normally do. And I actually ran into this, this great, bend and i i seen it from from a ways and i'm like man this is you know this is going to be it this is going to be a great great spot and lo mm-hmm. and behold it's it's still one of the biggest brook trout that i've ever caught in that in that mm-hmm. run there and he hooked i hooked him on the first cast brought him in good fight and then you know as soon as i hooked him he run real low right to the bottom i love when they do that goodness gracious do i love that because it just it gets mm-hmm. so heavy when they do that and uh 
pull me to the bottom and I could see where there was um, there was some mountain laurel roots and stuff and I was I was skeptical for a second I thought oh dang you know don't don't you run me up into there because I'm not <laughs> you're not coming back from that one so um, mm. I was able to, to turn the rod and, and kind of get him to, to spin and come back towards me and um, as soon as I netted him um, and I'm not one for usually actually using a net all the time but I did have a net on me that day and I netted him and as soon as as soon as he was in there you know hook come out and uh it, it was one of them ones i just remember I, I have pictures of that fish and i think that i have posted them on on the instagram page before but um was one of those super bowl memorable fishes and i only caught four trout all together that day and that's very uncommon mm. for me you know i'm i would say i'm usually good for at least i don't know anywhere from eight to to 20 or more if it's really mm -hmm. good day um uh, but um, is there any instances you can think of where, you know, you had one of them super memorable moments and I don't want to just go revert back to that first fish you caught on a flower because I can also remember mine too, but, mm -hmm. um, is there any one that sticks out uh, right away as soon as I bring up something like that? Well, I will first say that, you know, and, and I get this comment on videos I've posted in the past, a lot of guys will say, why didn't you use a woolly bugger there? Because, you know, there was probably a giant fish sitting down in there. And uh, I'll be the first to admit that there's times where I'm out fishing and, and perhaps could be changing up what I'm using more frequently. But honestly, I just look at the water and, you know, I pick a stream. It's usually about exploration for me. Yeah. It's about the excitement of not knowing what's in that stream. Yep. And sometimes that results in a big fish that I wasn't expecting. And other times it results in a lot of small fish. Right. And honestly, I'm okay with what that stream gives up on that particular day. And to me, that's all part of the experience. Now, I know that there's a hardcore group of guys out there that, you know, they like to chuck big streamers and they literally will walk miles and miles um, just for that goal of catching the one big fish. And I appreciate that. Right, um, right. And maybe one day I'll do that. But for me, you know, I just like doing the research of finding a stream, making it a target. I particularly love fishing water I've never fished before, especially when it comes to the brook trout. Mm -hmm. And it's that adventure of walking into something you don't know what you're going to find. And when it does result in a big fish, to me, that's just one of those trips that is a cherry on top. Mm -hmm. And yes, I have handfuls of memories like that sprinkled through my adventures across Pennsylvania where, um, you know, I went into it not expecting much and came out um, finding you know, a trophy fish, whether it was a brook trout or a brown trout. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, there's a couple that stick out. Uh, I can remember specifically fishing a stream in Bradford County mm -hmm. where I had walked uh, a stream probably in early June. And I remember catching a lot of small fish. I didn't see a lot of fish. And again, it was for me just trying to push through to fish this section of stream and I think it was probably in the last 10 minutes of that hike that there was a small plunge pool and I kind of lackadaisically threw my dry fly in there. And I watched this probably four or five-year-old class native brook trout come up out of the depths of this little waterfall mm -hmm. and just slowly suck my fly in off the surface. 
And um, to, to, to this day, that's probably the most beautiful, uh, most mature brook trout I've caught in the state of Pennsylvania. And um, I wasn't really there looking for that at the time, but that's how that trip ended and it made it super special. So yeah, um, I kind of, I, I, I think that's kind of the draw for me is that not knowing what that trip's going to hold or what that stream's going to, going to hold that day. Yeah. Um, and that's an important thing to remember just because you fish one stream one day and that stream gives you that experience doesn't mean you won't come back two weeks or two months or two years later and have a completely different experience. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into how that day played out the way it did. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Oh my goodness. The amount of factors that play into that are, are astronomical. Um, sometimes the stars align, you know, and you just, you're just there at the right place at the right time. And next thing you know, you, you landed a 22 inch wild Brown or a, a 13, 14 inch, native brook trout and you're just in shock and awe that that it's there and you feel like hey i'm gonna mark this on my map and i'm gonna go back and catch them and some guys in some places you know i i know of, of one trout in particular that guys catch and it's just they go there at the same time of the year and it's like the fish goes there and other times of the year it's like he's not there so um, yeah and you know there's a lot of reasons for that too yep. you know one of one of the things i've learned with with native brook trout and wild brown trout are, you know, these fish move a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around. Um, you know, just as much as some of these small streams get low in the summer and some of those fish will go under rocks and they, they pretty much will hide under those rocks or undercut banks. Even when the water gets very, very low, mm -hmm. there are a lot of fish that are living within water systems where they can retreat to a lake or a pond or another stream and a lot of people don't realize how an entire population of fish can move from one stream <laughs> into a lake for the summer or something along those lines and uh, I think that was a big eye-opening thing for me too because one year all those fish in a good water year might stay in that stream whereas the next year in a low water year all those fish might move into a lake and if you fish that stream in those two different situations, you're going to take away two entirely different experiences. And it's important not to define the stream based on one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. You make a, you make a great point there. They are. And that's why we just chase them. You know, we were chasing these fish because they're going to do whatever they want. And we're just here to, to chase mm -hmm. them around and, and try to catch them. Um, yep. So when, when you are out fly fishing, yeah, obviously there's, there's multiple forms of, of using flies. Now, mm -hmm. are you more of, Hey, I would really like to fish the top water or, uh, do you enjoy nymphing maybe more? Is there, is there anything you, I guess, what is your preference? You know, a lot of that is dictated by conditions. You know, mm -hmm. the conditions kind of drive what's happening and, and maybe the time of the year as well. For sure. Uh, my experience has shown that the majority of the year, um, even with wild brook trout, uh, sorry, native brook trout, mm -hmm. uh, it, nymphing is very successful. I, I've gone on many brook trout streams where, you know, most guys would be like, wow, you got to throw a dry fly there. And if the water levels are good, and especially late winter, early spring, nymphing is 
is the meal ticket because I've found that oftentimes those fish are not looking to the surface, you know, they're subsurface and yep. uh, eating nymphs. And then there's other times of the year, you know, once you get past, you know, mid April, those fish do start looking up and they're looking for bugs that are on that waterway, or they're looking for terrestrials falling into the stream. And, uh, you know, at that point, moving to the, to the surface is, is more successful. And so for me, it, it's really driven by the conditions and the time of year. Mm-hmm. And I really do enjoy nymphing because, uh, you know, some people hate it, but I'm an indicator guy. I love watching that indicator dart under the surface <laughs> and, but you need water to do that successfully. You right. need, you need good current and good flow, uh, for those nymphs to move through a run. Uh, and if it's there, I love to fish indicators. Uh, but there's also the the draw of the dry fly on the surface, whether it's just a standard dry fly or a dry dropper rig. And uh, knowing, like you described earlier, that if you find that perfect plunge pool or that perfect run that has that just slight cloudiness to to the run and the water that that the fish can't see you, it's not quite clear enough. And you know if you drop that dry fly at the top and let it run through down on the surface that something's probably going to to attack it um that is is hard to match the excitement and the fun of of fishing you know dry flies in those situations so you know for me it's about conditions i do love to nymph if you watch my videos you'll know that but um i also love fishing the surface too so i think it's just dictated by the conditions time of year yep i agree with you totally i i i think that there's just something to be said in the excitement form of you know i've i've had fish really really whack um, a nymph where, where you don't, I mean, yeah, you, you have an indicator or whatever, but you just, uh, you don't even need it. I mean, they're just, they're ripping on it right now. And, Correct. um, that's, that's great. Especially when you're running like a heavy riff in the water, it's like, they mm-hmm. just, you know, they're, they're going to hook themselves. Um, mm-hmm. but there's something to be said for sight fishing when you see a mm-hmm. fish, especially when they just dart to it, you know, like we were saying, like, like the brook trout and it just hits the water and all of a sudden you just see the shadowy figure mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's coming. And it's like, you hear the jaws theme. It's like, dan it, dan it. and it just, yep. it just whacks it. And yep. it, that's just super exciting. Um, this, so sight fishing, I think for me is a little more exhilarating, but I also think and mm. believe, I think that fishing with a nymph, you know, for me, I'm I'm not the most advanced or or best fly fisherman, but I can catch mm-hmm. fish on nymphs. Mm-hmm. When it comes to dry flies, I have a much harder time catching fish uh, with dry mm-hmm. flies. So I think I personally believe and think that there's a little bit more that goes into um, dry flies. Now, if you have the right fly and you're casting into a pool that they're surfacing on, yeah, you're <laughs> you're gonna have mm-hmm. a hell of a day. But um, mm-hmm. It's, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors there. Um, for sure. You know, I think again, some of it comes with learning. Uh, a lot of guys who maybe get into brook trout fishing with a dry fly, they might immediately go for a fly that's maybe too large for the fish that they're chasing. And when that happens, you'll have a lot of splashes and a lot of missed hookups. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you downsize, you know, that size 14 um, to something smaller like a 16 or an 18, and suddenly you might be hooking up every cast um so it's really just a matter of learning uh and experimenting at times yeah i think it runs right back to the preserve uh preservance and patience that we were talking about 
um, mm-hmm. earlier, you know, whether you're willing to, to do what it takes to learn or, or you're mm-hmm. not. And um, mm-hmm. that kind of segues into, into the next thing I want to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. what are some resources or, or books or websites, um, or maybe even if you want to do some shout out to some mentors that you've had in the past um, that you think or would like to put out there that may or may not help others as they may have helped you? Sure. Um, I'm happy to talk about that. And, you know, I think oftentimes when I hear that question asked, you know, you can almost like guess like what at least like 50% of the responses are going to be because you hear, you know, a lot of people have been influenced by a lot of the same things. And right. and I appreciate that. Right. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to answer, answer it as honestly as I can. I mean, for me, learning about fly fishing absolutely started with people in my inner circle. So it was, you know, like I said, my father instilled the love of fishing in me. And there were certain people throughout my life journey that played a role. And it was often close friends that just happened to fly fish. And those are people I chose to spend time with. And my first thing to people would be surround yourself with a friend or somebody that fly fishes and explain your interest. And, you know, a good person's going to kind of take you under their wing and, and share their knowledge and get you started. And then don't give up. Uh, you need to know that, that you're not going to pick it up right away, but the more you push into it, the more you're going to, to progress. Uh, but there are certainly things there, there's content and there's mentors and teachers that have, um, influenced me one way or the other throughout my life. Um, you know, there's the professional faces that I watched on TV. Um, or now on YouTube, or maybe even, uh, I'll probably date myself a little bit by saying VHS. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, some of these guys are are truly legends for that reason, that everybody knows who they are and were exposed to their, their content in the early days. Joe Humphreys, um, I learned some invaluable nymphing information, uh, especially about adding weight to a line and how to add it to a line and how to drift nymphs from Joe Humphreys and watching some of his early teaching videos. Mm-hmm. Um, Lefty Cray, uh, both seeing him speak in person mm-hmm. and, and watching him on television, uh, that guy really impacted the way I thought about casting uh, a fly rod and a fly line. Uh, and, and so Lefty Cray was always somebody that I really looked up to from, from the casting perspective. Um, George Daniels, like the, you know, the nymph god, uh, and, you know, he's really known for his Euro nymphing, but I definitely picked up some tips from listening to him. He really has a, uh, a way of breaking things down very, in a very articulate manner, very detailed, complicated things, especially reading water mm-hmm. and currents. Uh, I learned a lot, uh, listening to him, um, sitting in a couple of his seminars and, um, you know, I have a lot of old books growing up, like, you know, some of the early Orvis books, stuff I picked up at garage sales. Yeah. Uh, some of those old books really do a good job of just, you know, cementing the fundamentals that go into fly fishing. And sometimes those are just the most important things you need to take off. Um, YouTube nowadays is just an endless world of learning. It's a whole university. Um, <laughs> It really is. And and the one thing I will say about YouTube, and um, it's not because I have an axe to grind, but you do need to be careful because 
and, and this is why I've, I've always been tried to be cautious on my channel because I am not an expert. You know, I, I'm just a regular guy that's learned to fish and, and have, has a passion for it. And some of the things I've said have helped people. Um, but there are people out there that, you know, they, they start fishing, they get followers. And next thing you know, they're being regarded as well. This guy must know what he's talking about. And I would say, this is really important for the young kids to know. 50,000 followers on YouTube does not equate fly fishing mentorship or expertise. Uh Um, I will say that people that fish a lot certainly are exposing themselves to a lot of situational learning. And I think that's valuable. Um, So I'm not saying, you know, that, that YouTube's bad, but you just have to take things with a grain of salt and filter it and process it. Yeah. And there are definitely, you know, the cream rises to the top in the world. And, and there's guys that are legends for a reason. And I think you just need to take things through social media with a grain of salt. Uh, a lot of people are popular for reasons beyond fishing knowledge um, and, and expertise. Uh, sometimes they're famous just for pure entertainment purposes. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to know. But, you know, I grew up reading Fly Fisherman magazine. Um I remember reading the Drake. Uh, I remember, you know, books that are critical around here. I mean, I wore out the Pennsylvania trout streams, um, Paul Weimer's books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, just so many of them. I would just encourage people, you know, whether it's at a garage sale or whether it's just going and picking up uh, something on Amazon or, or, you know, on your Kindle now, I guess they're electronic mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, just start somewhere, start with the fundamentals and build from there. And um, just remember that there are people that have walked these paths before you. Um, And that's something I always try to keep in mind too. That that thought always crosses my mind when I walk in these brook trout streams um, in the middle of nowhere and somewhere in the back of my head, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm probably the only person that's been here for a long time. And um, there's always been somebody there, you know, somebody was there before you. Somebody walked that place and appreciated it. Somebody knew that place. Um, I think it's always important to to have that perspective. Yeah, I I agree one hundred percent and tenfold there because yeah, there's there's always someone um, that that blazed the path for us and 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 left left something there for us and that's what we need to do moving forward. And I guess that can segue into something else we can talk about. As a well-traveled, um, you know, fly fisherman, I know that you've been around a couple of different places. And the show is about Pennsylvania. So I would like for you to try to rank Pennsylvania within your fishing adventures. And, you know, we're kind of specifically talking about trout. So where mm-hmm. where would you put our state um, as far as our trout fishing in your experiences on a, I don't want to say a ranking system, but just how, how do you feel about our state as a whole? Well, you know, <laughs> I guess it, de- it depends how you define trout fishing. Uh-huh. Um, are you talking about big fish, number of fish, mm-hmm. number of streams? The one thing I will say that's unique about Pennsylvania is we have probably more miles of trout stream with wild native fish or stocked fish or, or just trout in general 
than probably many of the states in the country. I, I don't know the, the actual stat there, but I, I just know that out of all the states in the country, we have more miles of fishable water than probably most states. Um, I couldn't tell you which ones rank higher, but I know we're up there. And I think that is probably my biggest takeaway. There's no doubt that there are streams in the West that maybe hold heavier populations of, of wild fish in, in one stream. Um, and, you know, I remember a stat that always stuck out to me. I think there's a stat that says that Spring Creek up in State College has more brown trout per square mile or just as many brown trout per square mile of some of the greatest streams in Montana. Um, so that gives you some idea of like how good fishing is in central PA. But I think it really comes down to just fishable water and, and even, even beyond that accessible water. Pennsylvania has a lot of wonderful public land wild trout fishing, yep. especially in the northern tier in the central part of the state. Um, it's just, you know, I, I don't know if you can match that anywhere in the country. Um, all that public land and all those miles of trout water, uh, especially with the native brook trout, we're just very lucky to have that. And Pennsylvania, I mean, you're asking a guy who has done the majority of his fishing in the Northeast mm-hmm. and Pennsylvania. So, right. you know, Pennsylvania is my number one. Um, you know, it's, it's always fun to go out of state and to explore other places. But to me, no place is going to match that walking up into that mountain hollow a few miles and finding that place that very few people lay eyes on in a, in a 12 month period and uh, being able to catch a native brook trout. To me, that's pretty special. Um, and there's miles and miles of it in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And it's publicly available. <laughs> it's crazy. So for me, Pennsylvania is number one. Yeah. Uh, but but I'd have to say I'm biased. <laughs> well, I, I am biased too, um, but I do plan on doing some traveling with my fishing rod. Now, um, when I say that, I, I don't think that the trips will be sole purpose of fishing, um, mm-hmm. unless I get down on the green river, then that will definitely be, um, a, a purposeful fishing trip for, for large brown trout. But, um, yeah, if I, can... and, and I would, I would say Marcus that, you know, based on the other East coast States that I've fished, you know, New York has some great fishing I and mean, everybody knows about the cat skills, mm-hmm. um, the Adirondacks. Yep. Uh, then you have some streams in Western Maryland. You have some some streams in Western Virginia. Um, I would say that West Virginia is kind of a sleeper state, mm-hmm. and people from West Virginia will probably hate to hear me <laughs> say that because they're like, "Don't tell people about West Virginia." But West Virginia is absolutely uncharted territory. It reminds me of Pennsylvania a lot in that way. Mm-hmm. I can't speak. I don't. I don't know West Virginia enough from a public land access point, but I would imagine there's probably a good amount of public land access down there. I just think West Virginia is a state that most people. It, it just kind of goes off people's radar. I think it's becoming more on people's radar. Yeah. Uh, with the internet and with YouTube, but um, I think there's some excellent untapped native trout fishing in West Virginia that rivals what's in PA. But at the end of the day, PA absolutely has so much water to walk and fish. Um, and, and I just don't think you can compare it to North Carolina or Georgia or Virginia or Maryland or New York. Um, some people argue so they're blue in the face about New York and the Catskills, um, especially the West Branch and uh, some of the things that go on up there. But 
Pennsylvania is a pretty amazing state. Yeah, I think we do it really well. And sometimes, you know, as much as I appreciate um, the natural resources that have been uh, farmed um, and taken beforehand, what what they have left is sometimes not so good, you know, with your mind run off and, and such and stuff like that. And sometimes I think, boy, I, I can't imagine the amount of waterways especially in my area, because I'm, I'm, I am an old coal country, you know, old soft coal country. And, um, there's streams that, oh my God, I'm telling you the, the, to read the water and look at them. If it was good water, these streams would be killer. I mean, they would hold large trout. I know they would hold large trout and, uh, just vast amounts of them because it's, they're just the way they bend. You know, I have a, 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 a small stream that runs through the game lands not far from where I'm at. And it's, I mean, it's just sulfurized and it's a shame because it, the way it bends and, and moves, goodness gracious, would it have some nice brook trout in it? I'm sure of it. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to try to clean up stuff like that. And in conservation efforts, we need to uh, make sure that we have these, these streams for our kids and their kids and, whoever uh, is going to follow us to, to fish. So a hundred percent. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I always spend time up in the big pine Creek Valley mm-hmm. uh, every spring with some friends. And uh, we've talked quite a bit with people that know the history of that area. And just that area alone, uh, if you read back before the logging companies came in, you know, big pine Creek apparently used to be loaded with large native brook trout. And when they took those tree canopies away um, and they cut those mountains down, um, you know, it just completely changed the dynamic. Those fish were no longer in Big Pine Creek. You know, they primarily moved into the headwaters. Um, And you just think about all the places throughout the Appalachians where some uh, impact of development or industrial uh, efforts you know, change the landscape of the way it was originally. And man, just to be able to go back, you know, imagine being able to go back two or 300 years to what it was like originally. Yeah. I just can't imagine. I mean, certainly the native brook trout in the Appalachians has lost a very large percentage of its home range. And I think that's a lesson we need to learn from um, and, and really conserve what we have now, but it would have just been mind blowing to see it, uh, in its natural state years ago. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And sometimes I think people don't realize just how much, I guess, little it takes to change the way a stream is, you know, the, the way the water rolls off a hillside, whenever you take um, 40 acres of trees up, you know, take and, and clear cut right up above that or something and how, you know, that affects the way that the, the, the there's shade on the Creek or that the, the water rolling down the hill gets caught and, and taken into the soil instead of just running down over. Now your stream is full of soot or, you know, mud or, you know, it rains and it's just muddy for days in there. And there, there's a lot to be said. And, and with that, I mean, do you feel or think uh, that the Pennsylvania fish commission does a very good job in what they do with stuff like that? Um, is there anything you would like to see change or anything you'd like to give them a shout out on that you think that they're doing, uh, especially well in? I'll be honest with you. I, I can't say that I am close enough to everything that the fish commission is doing, 
um, to conserve or protect native trout. Mm -hmm. Um, There are definitely people in the state and in the community that can speak to it um, much, much better than I would be able to. So I'm hesitant to even answer that question. Okay. Um, I, I do know that in recent years, it seems as if um, there's been more of an interest on the part of the Fish Commission to want to do more for uh, native or wild trout populations. Yep. And, um, you know, I know that they have like a, a trout summit, or I remember them having some type of a wild or native trout summit just a couple years back. And um, I know there's people, um, you know, I think even... Uh, seeing people like George Daniels or George Daniels' wife involved in things at the Fish Commission is probably positive because you know that they bring a certain perspective to things, and I'm sure that that's influencing uh, their perspectives. Um, I can say that some of the things that happen with stocking uh, trout, meaning hatchery-raised trout, in wild streams, um, some of that does not make sense to me. Um, you know, even going back to like Pine Creek, you know, you look at some of the stocking that goes on in a water system like that, knowing that many of those fish cannot inhabit that stream in the middle of the summer where the water temps get up into the seventies or higher, they are absolutely, uh, if they're not finding cold water springs on the bottom of big Pine Creek, they're absolutely moving upstream into headwaters and if it's a brown trout that's been stocked and then that trout takes resident and populates, you know, now you're talking about fish impacting native trout populations. And now you start getting into a real hot button issue um, that I certainly am not necessarily equipped to speak to, mm-hmm. but I definitely think it's something that we as anglers need to be aware of because, um, you know, our native trout populations are certainly fragile and special. And um, I think we at least need to be aware of when the programs that we're implementing um, potentially have adverse effects on them, that, that we can be, make smart decisions and have smart conversations about it. Yeah. Um, so I would leave it at that. I, I don't necessarily want to speak to what the Fish Commission is or isn't doing because I don't feel like I'm necessarily qualified to speak on that. Um, I think they do a lot of good things for fishing in the state, mm-hmm. especially promoting it to, to younger fishermen. Um, is there room for improvement? I'm sure there absolutely is. Right. Um, right. right. Yeah. And the question's not to dog or, you know, to, 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 uh, you know, blast them or anything like that. Um, it's just, you know, opinionated things that, that you or I feel or want to see, I guess, looked at more deeply. Um, cause you know, like you said, I'm not a biologist, you're not a biologist, so it's hard to speak on certain, certain things. Um, it just, I guess it's one of those, Hey, we're outside looking in and maybe, uh, you know, take a look at this or that, but. Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think if I could call one thing to attention, it would be a, a closer look at where we are, uh, putting populations of stocked fish mm-hmm. and how that's impacting wider water systems and wider native trout populations uh, i think that's something that needs to be maybe taken a little more seriously or looked at closer yep yep i think you make a, a great point and something to put under a microscope i think that what happens a lot of the time is there's a political push for a certain spot to be stocked and you know when when the shit rolls downhill they have no choice sometimes but to just show up with a stock truck and put the fish in there um mm. 
And I, I, unfortunately, I think that that's what happens. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. But uh, I, I, I think I know of two spots that that has happened. That's why I think that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you, you were very well accomplished, I believe, um, fisherman. What kind of goals do you still have, or benchmarks would you like to reach? Uh, maybe within the coming, you know, couple years or anything. Is there anything you have slated on your plate that you want to achieve or get done or? You know, hey, I, I got to do this before, you know, I can't move good or, or anything like that. Uh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really a guy that was ever, you know, I was never really a fish counter. I never really, um, you know, oftentimes I stop counting fish if I'm having a good day. But mm-hmm. I've never been one of those people that really follows, like, my personal best fish um i think if anything it's it's really just continuing the exploration um you know i've fished a very large percentage of the class a streams uh those streams that are designated with that biomass rating here in the state i've fished a lot of them. i'd I'd love to be able to say i fished all of them um but i would just honestly like to be able to walk as many natural trout reproduction blue lines in this state as possible. Um, and I've also found an interest in fishing states around here, you know, in the past year, um, you know, where I live now here in the Lehigh Valley, I live on the Eastern edge of the Lehigh Valley, just below the Poconos. And, you know, I'm close to New Jersey and you have a lot of streams that are tributaries to the Delaware river, which hold wild trout. And then even even systems inland, um, you know, trying to chase wild trout in a in a state like New Jersey is a whole new challenge. Yeah, um, and it presents a completely different set of circumstances and environments. And there's something fascinating about that to me. But really, at the end of the day, I think it's for me, it's really about that exploration and seeing that place that I haven't seen before, walking water I haven't seen before. Um, I think that's really what drives me. And, and the other thing I would say about that, Marcus, which has been a real learning experience for me, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, even, even when you go fish these, you know, a lot of guys get zoned in on those class A streams and, you know, there are streams that have class B ratings and C ratings and D ratings, uh, based on the biomass. But one of the things I've learned in my, my time exploring is that, you got to remember the the fish commission surveys these streams and some of these streams that have a class a rating may have been surveyed years ago yep and it may not hold a class a rating anymore it may have only held a class a rating for a short period of time and many of these streams um you know they're going through cycles with the age classes of fish one stream might fish great for a couple of years and then be just small young of year for several years after that. And that's why when you find these streams that have these older age class fish, it really is a treat because those fish have been there. You know, I think a brook trout lives on average for about, you know, a max of five years. Mm -hmm. So when you think about, you know, finding a stream that has a great age class of brook trout, that's a pretty incredible experience because it might only be there for a short time. And then, the young of the year come back around um, and, and you may go through that stream and not catch those same 
um, you know, nine, 10 inch brook trout. So I kind of look at the class A and the, and the, and the other ratings as just a small guide to a much bigger story. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. I think a lot of people just immediately equate class A to, well, it's class A, I got to go fish it. When really there might be a class B or a class C stream that is now class A. But you also have to keep in mind what are things like water quality. And, um, you know, a stream that has poor water quality uh, until it's cleaned up is always going to have poor water quality. And that is going to not be to the advantage of a strong fish population, at least for in the case of brook trout. Um, But if you find a stream that's healthy with clean water and it was class B one year, it might be class A the next year. It's always changing. It's always shifting. It's always evolving. Um, You know, a low water event could damage a population um, for a period of time. Uh, so there's a lot of things to be aware of. And I think that's another thing that makes the exploring fun is you never really know what you're going to walk into. Um, you can, you can per- put certain data points together to say, I think that stream could be good, but until you actually get out there and walk it and fish it, um, you just don't know. Yeah. You, you make a great point because I have seen streams change where, you know, three years before that I fished that thinking, man, I can't wait to get back there. And I finally get back there and I'm like, what the heck happened here? (laughs) But yeah. And, and kind of like the life cycle, I I've never actually even thought of that. That's, you make a great point, you know, how they could all, you know, be a certain age, kind of all die off. And then, you know, what you're left with is just your three to five inch, uh, smaller natives and then you know they got to rebuild and come back just kind of like some other animals uh, you know turkeys rabbit uh, some other things they have uh, they- yeah and I'll tell you I'll tell you what 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 data points me to say that Marcus is that there are states that border Pennsylvania that they do stream surveys where they look specifically at the age class of the fish in the survey so what happens is you can look at a survey in an adjoining state And they might say, well, we surveyed this two miles of stream and we caught six fish that were of this age class and we caught 30 fish that were young of year, meaning they were very small. Right. Um, And then they go back the next year and there might not be any older age class brook trout and all young of year. And maybe the young of year is small or maybe it's larger. Um, And so that that to me really speaks to that that idea that. Uh, if they're electro surveying the stream and they're seeing those types of movements in the population, um, it's it's a constantly evolving and and moving uh, thing. So you can't just pin it down to oh, it's class A, it's good fishing. Um, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it does, right? Um, but oftentimes it does not. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, I'm. I mean, I know of probably two class A streams where. Now that makes sense now that you say that because they just – they're good streams, but they just – like the, the biomass is not there, you mm-hmm. know, where I can go to a stream that's not far from that one that would just be considered a, like a wilderness stream mm-hmm. or, or, or a wild reproduction stream, and yep. they're just more plentiful. They're bigger, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's funny, though, because I usually like when that happens, to be honest, because then <laughs> – you know right. people quit fishing them streams and mm-hmm. they get better again that's for sure um but 
you know, basically, uh, I want to start wrapping it up here with us. Um, sure. You know, I, I really appreciate you coming through with this conversation, and I would really like for you to promote what you're doing and and your page and your videos, man, because I think that mm -hmm. your content is really great, and uh, I think everybody listening probably enjoyed this conversation and should really check out what what you're doing and where you're at. So if you could just uh, touch on where they can find you and how they can get a hold of you if they have any questions. Sure. So my brand, I guess you could call it online, is called Wooly Bugged. That's W-O-O-L-Y-B-U-G-G-E-D. And um, if anybody ever wondered where I came up from uh, with that name, it was actually a password I used uh, that I just came up with on a whim to log into like an email account on Google or something. So, um, that's where that name came from and it kind of evolved into uh, a blog. So, uh, Wooly Bugged was originally a blog and I still have that out there at woollybug.com. Um, it documented a period of about three or four years where I wrote pretty heavily um, about the outings that I took and, um, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I haven't been writing as much as I'd like to. Um, I, I do plan to get back to it, and that's why it's still out there. But Wooly Bug kind of evolved into a YouTube channel then. And uh, I do have a YouTube channel uh, and an Instagram page under the Wooly Bug handle. Um, I've kind of taken a little bit of a break from social media uh, in the past year, year and a half, just because um, it's something that, that I just don't want to have dictate my life or even dictate the way I fish. Yeah. Um, and, and, but it is something I will come back to. Uh, and, and I can promise that when I come back, I'm hopefully coming back better educated um, with maybe more to share. And uh, for me, it's, it's somewhat of a creative uh, release as well. So, um, but sometimes I just like getting out and fishing and uh, without having to worry about a camera or, um, a picture. And uh, so I hope anybody that's been a follower of my content doesn't take offense to maybe me not posting all the time. Um, it's really just because I want to keep the fishing about the fishing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, if you ever want to check out what I do, it's woolly bugged on YouTube um, and on the blog and on Instagram. Well, brother, I thank you so much, and I, I really hope everybody checks out what you're doing because I've been following you for for a couple of years now, and um, your your journey is really really fun to watch, and I like reading some of your blog stuff. So um, maybe one of these days we can collab and, and do something on a blog together. I would uh, I would really enjoy that and just touch on some of the stuff that we really love about brook trout fishing or or fishing in in particular, but. Um, Thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I, I couldn't ask for a better guest. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to check in with you next year or, or sometime soon and just see how everything's going. Yeah, I, I uh, appreciate the invite, Marcus, and uh, enjoy what you're doing here. And uh, I absolutely will take you up. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll get together and do some brook trout fishing I would uh, somewhere, somewhere I would, up north here in Pennsylvania. I would definitely, definitely uh, love that. And, yeah, I, I, I think we got some, some neutral ground that we can meet on and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and check out some, some different, some nice, some nice fishing. So, um, thank yeah. you. Thank you for coming through brother. And, uh, we will, we'll talk to you soon in tight lines. Thanks Marcus. Appreciate it. 
you have finished another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. Guys, that's as I do at the end of every episode. I want to thank you so much for listening. And I love the network that we have going from this show and all the people that have been through. Mike, thank you so much for coming through. I really, really appreciated your time in the conversation. I love getting deep into people's minds like that. Guys, I got some I got some stuff coming up here. When I try to do a self-motivation slash mindset episode once a week thrown in there. And uh, I have something very large coming up here uh, towards the end of July. And some swag on the way. So with that being said, guys, I I appreciate it so much. I I can't get enough of the love. And uh, let's let's keep pushing guys that you know and women that you know that you think need to be on this show. Guys, reach out to me. I love hearing from you. Thank you so much. We'll continue to do what we do best, and that's bullshit. So (laughs) we'll see you soon.